What makes for a successful team leader? An interview with Lieutenant Junior Grade Joe Gills of the United States Navy, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 147, where I aim to arm us with some scientific evidence so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you doing today? I hope that you're doing well, and I have something special in store for you today. Today's episode is a bit of a unique one that will be a little bit less evidence-based more story and experience based because I have the great joy of bringing on a special guest podcaster to share with us some special insight into what makes a good team leader and what makes for a bad team leader. Today we are going to talk about leadership and personality disorders that include narcissism, hubris syndrome, arrogance, and how that can potentially lead to bad leadership. So without further ado, let me introduce our special guest, Lieutenant Junior Grade Joe Gills. He's a prior Army infantryman and currently serving as a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy. Before his current position as weapons officer, he was the strike officer on board USS Spruance, where his team earned the top scores in the Pacific Fleet for the year 2022. So welcome to the podcast, Joe Gills. It's great to be here. Lieutenant Junior Grade Joe Gills, a protector of our country, leading teams to the best of their ability under very stressful situations. We are very eager to hear about your personal experience in team leadership. So tell us a little bit about this competition that you had the highest top score for in the Navy. Sure. So uh, all of the units on uh, cruisers and destroyers in the Navy are constantly doing these scenarios with their uh, Tomahawk land attack missile or TLAM strike teams. So uh, I, as a strike officer, had a a team uh, that I worked with and uh, was leading. And so we're constantly running uh, scenarios about, you know, ways that we could use this uh, weapon system for us offensively. And, uh, and so this is kind of just a holistic assessment of all of these units, their ability to uh, plan these missions uh, and to execute these missions in a timely and accurate manner. So you're essentially assessing your offensive capabilities and how accurate you were at it? Yes. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I got to work with a great group of people. I inherited a great team um, and they really made it easy on me. So tell us a little bit about your team. Sure. So uh, my team is uh, generally going to be made up of five or six people, um, depending on the makeup. Uh, And they're going to be uh, planning all of these things and they're going to actually execute the tasking that we are given 
from a higher authority. So um, my job is to manage uh, those team members and make sure that uh, that everything that they do is done in an accurate manner so that when I send it up to the commanding officer for final approval before we go ahead and shoot this you know, multi-million dollar missile, uh, then it's, it's done correctly and we're going to hit the thing that we mean to hit. Um, That's so, a pretty stressful thing then. Yeah, it gets a little stressful sometimes, especially uh, when, when the captain knows what we're doing and you know, it's coming down there and he wants to do a really good job too. Um, so the, the, it, it does get pretty stressful. But uh, I think just managing those people and those different personalities and learning how to do that, it was, it was a really great thing for me. So did you find that there were any attributes or qualities to you leading that you think helped lead your team to success? I think um, honesty uh, is is a big one, just being honest with your people. Uh, but for me, it was allowing the people underneath me to flourish. I felt like if I, uh, in the beginning, I think when you when you do anything, whether that's a team sport or whether that's something in the military, the first few times you try it, you know, you're usually terrible. And then especially when you're you know integrating a ton of different people to it, um, different personalities, different backgrounds, different experience levels you're not going to be proficient as a team the first time around. So when I started, I really wanted a tight grip on the people and a tight grip on what exactly they were doing. And it made us function less efficiently. Uh, it, it made us work in a less timely manner. Our, our uh, work wasn't as accurate. And I found that once I was able to step back and let people work, uh, then we were much more effective. I think some people really just want to be left alone in their corner and they just want to do their work. They know what they need to do and you just need to let them do it. And some people need a little bit more reinforcement. They need a little bit more praise and sometimes just need a little bit of that confidence boost, you know, to know that you're behind them, you're, you're supporting them. And I think once you can identify that and let these people um, have what they need to be successful, then you can be a successful leader. I think sometimes identifying what our team members need in itself, though, can be a bit challenging. Do you have any techniques or ways that you were able to identify what your team members needed? I think being around your people is a big one. I mean, you you can't expect to know what people need without being there, being in front of them. So being somebody who's available and being around your people is, is huge. Uh, the other thing is having that open mind and that open line of communication and constantly trying to communicate with your people. Um, like I said before, some people need a little bit less input and need a little bit less of that communication. But some people, once you, once you find that, that thread and, and you feed them a little bit of, Hey, well, you know, we're talking, they're small talk. I'm getting to know them and they seem to want more or, you know, they're down at the end of the day, but, uh, but a compliment like, Hey, you know, I really, I see how hard you're working. I see what you're doing for me. I see all the hours you're working, the effort you're putting into this. I really appreciate what you do. And you kind of see them light up after that. I think once you, if you can see that and identify it, recognize it and follow that, then I think that's, it, it makes it a lot easier. So you're essentially saying that leadership needs to be personalized to each individual team member. Absolutely. You'd also mentioned earlier that you thought a great quality of leadership is honesty. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, I feel as though if you are honest with your people about your intentions and about the why behind what you're asking, 
that it makes everything a lot easier. It makes the 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 really tough demands uh, makes them want to jump to do those tough demands uh, a lot more. I think if they're if they don't understand why or they are question your intentions, then sometimes when you ask them something that's specifically difficult, they're going to be like, well, why do I have to do this? Why, why do I need to do this? Why do I need to take the extra time out of the day? All this extra effort, all this extra time here at work when I could be someplace else. They really want to see that there's a reason behind it. So um, sometimes this got me in a little bit of trouble, but there were times when I would just be very, very blunt and very upfront. We're doing this because somebody above me said that's the reason. But I would try to provide a real why as often as possible because then when there was something that was, you know, kind of, hey, we just do this because it's what we do, then they would say, okay, you know what, we got to get it done. You know, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't lie to us. He wouldn't mislead us in this, you know, that this is important when it's not important. Um, and so identifying also what is important is another big thing. I think a lot of leaders really struggle with, um, with placing uh, a value on an activity. So, you know, sometimes getting reports in in the morning um, and an emergency is met with the same level of stress. Oh, why weren't these reports in, you know, at this time? And it's, it's made to feel really important when really it's, it's just a slight inconvenience on the leader. And if everything feels this extreme high stress intensity, then nothing is intense. And I think meeting all of these different things that come at you um, with different levels of intensity and the correct level of intensity, I think your subordinates really feel that. So grading their tasks by level of importance yes. is key. Absolutely. I really respect that approach, the honest approach. I would imagine, too, that the tasks that you and your team had to do were pretty stressful and would be done under duress. Do you have any tips on how to have great teamwork or to lead a team in particularly stressful situations? Yeah, so um, things that must be done under duress, I think you have to plan for in advance as much as possible. Obviously, you can't see everything that's going to uh, that's going to come in those moments, especially in moments of crisis. But planning for it as much as possible and having those pre-planned responses ready is something that everybody needs. So, you know, um, there's that old adage that, you know, a plan uh, doesn't survive first contact with the enemy. You know, Mike Tyson said something a little bit more aggressive in that regard. But it's, you know, it, it's true. But you also need to have a plan going into anything. So um, taking this further back to the Army, what we would do uh, a lot of times were stress shoots. So they would put you on, under some sort of physical duress, really get your blood moving, really like put you through a very, very tough uh, physical time period. And then immediately after that, you would have to go and engage a target with your weapon system. And I think that made your immediate response uh, a little bit better so that when your blood was pumping, your, your, your heart was racing in these moments, it made you shoot more accurately as opposed to, hey, all of these are in super controlled environments where you don't really have a plan. Um, they would also do it with artillery simulators, just like making this really loud bang and then making you respond to it. And there's this kind of craziness and chaos the first few times that you do it. 
But once you plan and practice how you're going to respond, then you do it more smoothly, more controlled, and you really do kind of fall back onto what it was that you focused on in training. So the Navy has a lot of this too, especially when it comes to um, firefighting, when it comes to, um, we have pre-planned responses for everything. And I think that's good. It's good to, it's good to practice on those. Um, it's, it's not always good to rely on a list, you know, cause you want to have something in your head that becomes muscle memory, but it is really good to go into this with a, with a plan. Hmm. I wonder then how we could apply that knowledge to a workplace that's different from yeah. the military, <laughs> you know, like I suppose like in a law office or an accounting office, for example, or even in a research lab. Just having some plan of, hey, if this experiment fails, if we don't get these documents on time, what is our contingency plan? Right. Um, I think having, obviously you want to, to plan as much as possible um, and, and make sure that you have uh, all the different aspects of what could come to pass, as many, uh, as many of those things planned in advance. There's some things that, you know, obviously you can throw a wrench into anything, but um, but yeah, I think in non-military or non-combat related environments, I think just ensuring that anything that could be identified as a crisis, you have a plan for what that looks like. So in a lab, um, in a law office, what is the, the absolute worst case scenario? And you need to have a plan in place for that. And you need to have immediate reactions for what you're going to do and what each person in there is going to do. So if you have a team, hey, in the moment of crisis, what are we going to do? And I think a lot of places have this. You know, if you work in, you know, we work in a hospital, you work in a lab, I'm sure you guys have, hey, this is, this is how you leave the building in the event of a fire. The fire is kind of the worst case scenario. But you have a, a marker on the wall that says, hey, this is how we, this is how we get out of the building. And so even having that identified, and even though you don't think about it every day, having that plan, you know, on the back wall where there's an escape route, that's important. And so I think, I think we see this a lot and we do this a lot. We just don't realize that we're doing it. Mm. And I remember I can think back on when I was an undergraduate student over the weekend in one of our research labs, there was a fire and a lot of the research staff had lost their computer equipment mm -hmm. and their backup drives. Oh, and so, you know, we can apply this thinking like one of the yeah. worst things I think that can happen in an office setting or a lab setting is to lose your data, oh, yeah. is to lose your documents. And so hopefully every group and every team has, you know, a backup plan for if something happens to your physical drives, that you've got it now backed up, you know, on a cloud or OneDrive or something. Yeah, pay Google for that extra storage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think... Although, you know, I said before, we do, I think we do this on, on a daily basis. I think uh, what I'm advocating is for us to do it on a more conscious level. I think we, we kind of have plans and, oh, if something bad happens, you know, and, and we need to call an ambulance, we'll call 911. But having a, a backup plan that's real and is significant and what you specifically are going to do and being conscious about that effort is what makes your team able to survive crisis and able to function in crisis. So I think that's more what I meant, being, being conscious and cognizant of those choices. Hmm. So if you had to summarize like a few attributes that you thought made for good leadership, you would say honesty. Mm -hmm. Flexibility. Flexibility, yeah. yeah. Making personalized mentorship, like reading your people and seeing it, what it is that they need. Yes. And planning for stressful crises. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So how about bad leadership? Like, what do you think are the attributes of bad leadership and perhaps how we can avoid them? Um, so if a good leader is somebody who is going to tailor their leadership plan to the individuals and lead, lead their people as people, somebody who applies broad strokes to everyone, super generalized leadership plans that should apply to the swath of diversity that you have that exists in our world and in our workforces today. I think going at it as if we are all a monolith is a problem. If you if you act as if every one of your employees or subordinates or colleagues is the same, then it's you're going to fail. You're doomed to failure. People we we don't think the same, we don't perceive things the same way, and that's a that's a good thing because it's helping us have all of these varied perspectives and it's helping us see every aspect of a problem. So I think a leader who really just treats their subordinates or their employees with that broad stroke, uh, that broad brush is a problem. Um, and somebody who's self-interested, uh, somebody whose leadership style is, I'm just trying to get to the top and I'm climbing my way to the top and I don't care who I have to crush on the way there. Um, I think there's a lot of that in every industry. That's the, you know, there are horror stories about it in the military. There's far more in, uh, in academia and in uh, private companies everywhere. I mean, I'm sure we've all heard of, of CEOs who are kind of jerks and did whatever it took to get to the top. I think those are, are bad leaders. And even though they're technically successful, they're not good leaders. How about someone who can't handle stress? Somebody who can't handle stress, um, sure. I think that's, that's a big problem. But I think that you, if you're not good at handling stress, if you make a conscious effort, I think you can overcome a lot of that. And there are a lot of methods and mechanisms by which you can handle stress better. It just takes a conscious effort to do so. And so a leader who is you know, somewhat self-interested and doesn't care to expand and to change and better themselves, I think will be somebody who at some point lacks the ability to deal with stress at a higher level because they're not open-minded enough to see where this could become a problem. And eventually these things pile up, you know. It reminds me a bit of a previous episode that I had done on the neuroscience of self-confidence. At the end of that episode, I touched a bit upon overconfidence and arrogance and how some attributes that were correlated to arrogance and overconfidence were dogmatism and not being open to others' perspectives, which is a little bit sounding like how you're describing bad leadership. Absolutely. So for example, we have a set of criteria called the DSM-5 criteria that is used to help diagnose certain psychiatric illnesses and mood disorders. And the DSM-5 criteria goes into the criteria for diagnosing narcissistic personality disorder, which perhaps could be a disorder that is common to bad leadership. So let's go through some of those qualities. Uh, narcissistic personality disorder is a pattern of grandiosity need for admiration, and having a lack of empathy. The individuals may often portray arrogance and overconfidence. They tend to have a sense of entitlement, such as an unreasonable expectation of favorable treatment or compliance with his or her expectations. They may be exploitive and take advantage of others to achieve their own ends. So perhaps some of us can think of people that we know that may have some of those traits, of narcissistic personality disorder, but who is likely to develop this disorder? 
Well, they believe that developmental experiences, being negative in nature, being rejected as a child, and a fragile ego during childhood may contribute to developing narcissistic personality disorder as an adult. But at the same time, excessive praise, including the belief that a child may have extraordinary abilities, could also lead to narcissistic personality disorder. Often individuals with grandiose narcissism can present with heightened mood and more energy when excited by a new idea, especially when interacting with others. The unfortunate part is there are no approved treatments for narcissistic personality disorder. So if we are working with a leader that may have this disorder, we aren't entirely sure how to treat the disorder. So Lieutenant Junior Grade Gills, have you worked with any leaders that you think may have some traits of narcissistic personality disorder? And perhaps from your experience, you can shed some light on how may we interact with an individual with this disorder? Yeah, I, um, yes. Uh, I think that's a very, some of these traits are unfortunately common um, in the military. Uh, and I'm sure we've all, all of us have at some point worked with somebody or known somebody who shared a lot of these traits. And I think it's it's really easy to witness uh, some of these people who get really excited, like to deliver the, the sort of rousing speech that we've all seen in, in the movies, and then really do nothing with it. And so I think these people are a lot of talk and not a lot of substance. Um, I think the, you know, the great military example of somebody who was wildly overconfident in their abilities or the specific advantage that they had is, is uh, Custer. You know, at, at Custer's last stand, just a wild uh, miscalculation of his own abilities or his position on the battlefield before eventually, ultimately meeting his demise. I think for me... On a day-to-day basis, I try to I try to fight the the complacent idea that I know even what I'm seeing, trusting ex- exactly what's in front of my eyes. If you're driving a ship and somebody says, you know, hey, sir, this this ship is coming in toward us, and I think it's going away from me, well, one of us is wrong, and so just a complete belief in myself and trusting in my eyes could lead to disaster. I need to have that spirit in me that questions, you know, oh, this guy could be feeding me bad information, so I should double check. But that means double checking my own work and not having so much, so much overconfidence that I'm not willing to, to believe that I could potentially be wrong. The belief that you are infallible, I think can only lead to disaster as a leader. And sometimes the consequences are sort of innocuous. It's not that big of a deal. And sometimes they are absolute catastrophe. So I think to guard against that, you have to be questioning at all times, you know, if somebody brings you information, are, should I double check their information? Yes, trust what they're saying, but you know, verify it, but also be willing to be wrong at all times. And I think humbling yourself and having that humility is is really important. Uh, I think the problem in dealing with a leader like that, though, is simply, you know, you you touched on it. There's no known treatment for this. How do we deal with these people? I think it's kind of what I was talking about before. You have to take them on a case-by-case basis. Each one of these 
these people, these individuals, even with narcissistic personality disorder, is not going to be, they're not going to all be the same. And you can't paint them with that broad stroke brush. Uh, I think a lot of times, um, including them publicly in, in your ideas uh, and making sure that they can take credit for it or making sure that they have some specific benefit is something that um, is, is a way that I've found that I can still take action and take action that I believe to be right. Um, but if, I feel like if you fight them too much, then they're going to want to just stick to their guns and dig in even harder because they do have that overconfidence and belief that they are right. So finding a way to get them to buy in by getting them to believe that they somehow got you here, I think is, is a, a technique that I've used, but I, I'm not going to say to your listeners, Hey, yeah, this is, this is going to work every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a good experience because, you know, working with individuals that might have narcissistic personality disorder is a, a very difficult challenge and something to which we don't necessarily have a great solution. But hearing your stories and your experience perhaps can start a brainstorm or some ideas for, for us to work toward, you know, a better working environment and better leadership and perhaps how to safeguard ourselves from being a leader with those bad traits. One other thing that I was interested in when I was looking at overconfidence or arrogance was hubris syndrome. So David Owen has published many papers on hubris syndrome. Now, hubris syndrome is associated with power, and the syndrome is more likely to manifest itself the longer that someone has the power and the greater power that they exercise. So often we might see hubris syndrome in politicians. Individuals with Huber syndrome tend to see the world as an arena in which they can exercise their power and seek glory. But they are likely to take actions that will result in them cast in a good light and choose actions to make themselves look good. And they tend to talk about what they are good at and are preoccupied with their self-image. Usually the symptoms stop when the person no longer has that power and is less likely to develop in people who retain personal modesty, remain open to criticism, and have a degree of cynicism or well-rounded and developed sense of humor, which is speaking to the same attributes that you had said could help safeguard against bad leadership and overconfidence. Yeah, I think that if you if you are constantly humbling yourself and you know if you surround people surround yourself with people that have a good sense of humor and you know help to humble you, that uh, that's definitely going to help you out. Um, I think that in, that anytime you you get focused on your self-image or focused on personal glory and not the people that you are leading, uh, then you're, you're doing everyone a disservice and even eventually yourself. Um, all of us who are lucky enough to be put in these leadership positions, I think need to take a step back and look in the mirror and see what it is we really want from this. If, if what you're looking for is some, is, is more praise, is um, personal glory, then I think you're, you're doing all of these things for the wrong reasons. Uh, leadership should be about becoming a servant and serving the people who are your technical subordinates or your employees and doing all that you can to support them in their careers and their paths. And I think that's how you become a, a great leader. I think that, that if you follow that, then sure, the personal accolades can come. Because if you have a great team and you support your team and you ensure that they have the the capability 
and the the elbow room to to exercise all of their talents and use their intellect to the maximum uh, ability that they have then i think that you're you're going to reap the benefits of that inherently you will reap the benefits of that you that shouldn't be your goal but it will happen so don't aim to to serve yourself aim to serve the people that you're leading and i think that you will be successful and they will be successful in tune i absolutely love that and i think that that actually might be my favorite suggestion that you've given on how to be a successful leader that when we are granted the gift or the opportunity to lead people to realize that it's not about us necessarily or not about us obtaining glory but it is about us serving our people. So lastly, I want to touch a little bit upon this topic of competence versus confidence. So confidence or self-confidence is our perceived ability to do something with success, but competence is our ability to actually carry out something with success. So I would assume a good leader must have a certain level of competence as well. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I think if, if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you're talking about, uh, then you will not be able to lead people successfully. I think uh, for me specifically in, in my last tour, one of the schools that I got to go to before I went to lead this group, I was very lucky to go attend. I got to actually sit in the seats and do the things in each one of these scenarios that eventually all of my sailors uh, would end up doing uh, for me and with me. And uh, And I think that was really great because I got to see from their perspective, all of the different, uh, the stresses and the the time crunch that they were under and, and actually do those activities. And so I think that going into it with that background and also being um, prior enlisted, albeit not in, in the Navy, uh, helped, me, helped me bridge uh, the gap that I think is sometimes there between um, leaders and, uh, and their subordinates or their employees. But knowing what you're doing and, and knowing what you're talking about, people know immediately if you don't know what you're talking about, um, especially people who are subject matter experts. So if you think you're going to go into a field and you're going to just be able to BS your way through it and not know what you're talking about confidently, it's, it's just not true, uh, especially when you get into really technical um, occupations. And so for... For me, you know, I kind of had that feeling when I went in and when I was going to lead for the first time, like, oh yeah, I kind of, I got it. You know, I'm, I, I have this background as an enlisted guy, you know, it's not in this, uh, it's not in this area or this field, but, but that's enough. That'll, that'll be enough. And I just didn't realize how much I did not know. Um, and so I think being aware of that was, or uh, finding that out was a very humbling experience, but it was something that really helped me along the way and helped me to grow. And I think I had some great leaders, um, who, were ready to humble me and also who were ready to to teach me um, from my very first days in the army to the last time I, I stepped off of of my last ship I think I was I was led and had great leaders uh, the entire time you touched upon something interesting that I bet you probably some groups do this but to take a day to be in the shoes of your team members you said you literally sat in the chair of the different team members that you had on your team and saw their perspective. Yep. You went through what they went through on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I bet you the grand majority of leaders don't do that. And that could be a really good learning technique 
for someone if they feel like they want to be a better leader is to take a day and to step into the shoes of their team members and to be able to experience and gain that perspective as to what it is exactly that they're going through. Yeah, it was an excellent opportunity. Um, I wish everybody got to go through something like that. It, it's sort of a unique thing, I think, for the the strike of the Tomahawk community uh, that the that the leadership that goes through that and the junior officers that go through those courses get to go there and get to experience that and cycle through every every job that is going to need to be done to to complete a scenario. You're going to have to do at least two scenarios in each one of their seats. And I think that it, it brings a, a level of knowledge to you and at least an understanding of what they're going through. Not completely, but you get some insight into what it is that they're going through and the expectations that you should have of them and that, you know, sometimes when you need to, you know, just kind of let go and let them do their own thing. I've loved hearing about all of your experiences, about how you led your team to having the top scores in this competition. So thank you for sharing all of your perspectives. So if you had to summarize for all of us listening, what do you think are some great attributes to lead a successful team? What could you summarize it down to? Uh, I would say honesty, flexibility, competency, uh, personalizing your style to each of your team members, and remembering to stay humble. Uh, You've been given the opportunity to lead, so serve your people to the best of your ability and don't seek personal gain because those accolades will come if, if your team can be successful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think everyone in the People Scientist Army will very much enjoy this episode. I know I don't often do interview episodes, but when I do, I always make sure to bring on a special guest that brings a different perspective to the show. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.